Hi, I'm Eric Gurna of Development Without Limits, and this is Please Speak Freely, the podcast where we have honest conversations about youth development and education. Welcome again to Please Speak Freely. This is Eric Gurna of Development Without Limits. Before we get into this episode's conversation, I just wanted to say a couple words about the podcast. Uh, this is the ninth episode we're posting online. We have a few more recorded and that haven't been edited and posted yet, and a, a few more conversations that have been scheduled to be recorded. So things have really been moving along, and our, we have a growing subs- subscriber base on iTunes, um, more and more people are sort of checking it out. Um, and just wanted to reach out to the listening audience and ask if you're you know, interested in, in the conversations and, and becoming a part of the conversation to go onto our website, developmentwithoutlimits.org, click on podcast. There's now a blog feature that's connected to the podcast where a, a different writer uh, each time writes a short piece, personal piece, sort of in response to the ideas in the conversation. And um, there's the opportunity there for, for you to go on and post your own comments and be able to sort of become part of the dialogue. The strange thing about this podcast medium is that it's all output and without much input. And given that I'm used to doing a lot of impersonal professional development and seeing the looks on people's faces and feeling the vibe in the room, it's very strange for me to sit, sit in my office or wherever I, am, wherever I am recording and not get any feedback from you, the listeners. So, you know, drop me a line, Eric Gurna at developmentwithoutlimits.org or, you know, go onto the blog and join the conversation. I'd, I'd love to hear from you and love to know if you have any suggestions for the podcast, if you have suggestions for people you think I should talk to or things you think we should talk about. Love to hear from you. I'd also like to take this time to give a shout out to all of my colleagues out there in the field who have um, supported uh, the podcast through letting other people know about it. Uh, The Schools Out Washington Bridge Conference was the first sponsor of the podcast, and they have agreed to sponsor the podcast again for the Bridge Conference in October 2012 in Seattle, Washington. So thanks to Zach Wilson and the whole crew of Schools Out Washington for that. Um, the Partnership for After School Education has recently agreed to sponsor the podcast for their Pace Setter Awards. So I will be uh, interviewing each of the Pace Setter Award winners who are practitioners who have really shown excellence in the field. I'll be interviewing them for, for an episode of Please Speak Freely. And we'll also be recording live from the Pace Setter Awards event on March 1st in New York City. So if you'll be in the New York area and want to check out a great event in the field really honoring youth workers and after school programs, uh, go to a partnership for after school education and you can get tickets to the Pace Setter Awards. And, you know, other organizations such as the After School Alliance, Spark Action, Harvard's Pear Center, who have all been kind and generous in featuring the podcast on their websites, tweeting about it, uh, other kinds of social media. Um, really appreciate that and, you know, appreciate those of you who have taken the time to figure out what a podcast is if you needed to, and also to just to listen to the conversations and to encourage us to keep doing this.
This episode is, uh, to me, a very special episode of Please Speak Freely. Um, one of my professional heroes is the author and speaker, Alfie Cohn. And he was gracious enough after me being somewhat persistent and pushy to agree to, to go on Please Speak Freely. Uh, and we you know, had a great conversation. Uh, he has a lot of really grounded views and perspectives and opinion opinions. And when I say grounded, I mean he's got a lot of research to back up his thoughts. So um, take a listen and reach out and let me know what you think. So I'm here in Belmont, Massachusetts with Alfie Cohn, uh, author and lecturer. I want to welcome you to Please Speak Freely. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, you can find out more information about, about Alfie Cohn's work at alfiecohn.org, A-L-F-I-E-K-O-H-N.org. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, I, I was saying before we really formally got started that I've been a, a huge admirer of your work and um, more than that, that your work has really influenced my thinking and helped me sort of grow my perspective. Uh, now I'm seeing a whole new aspect of that. I have a, a young daughter, a four-year-old daughter. Mm-hmm. So I've been, your work has helped me shape my perspective in terms of my professional work with youth programs and with educators. Mm-hmm. And now I'm seeing a totally different, feeling a totally different version of that as a parent. Right, right. Um, but, you know, especially the, the books Beyond Discipline and, and Punished by Rewards. But uh, for our listeners, Mr. Cohen is also the author of um, uh, books like Schools Our Children Deserve. I guess yes. the title right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I believe the most recent book, Feel Bad Education. Is yes, that the most that's, recent one? that's uh, a collection of, of essays. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. And that's, a, that's also a great title. Um, I'm often referencing your work in, in my own work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have recently uh, reread Beyond Discipline, and it's inspired me to sort of revamp a lot of our the work we do around discipline. Maybe we'll be able to have a chance to talk a little bit about that. Okay. Um, but before we get into anything, I was starting to say to you earlier, I, I, this is not, I don't set this up like an interview, so I don't have a list of questions. Fine. I do have some notes to, okay. to, to mm-hmm. work from. But I wonder if you could say a little bit about what it is that you do, what you see as your, what is essentially your work. Well, I write and speak on a number of different issues having to do with education, parenting, and human behavior. I have a special interest in pulling together research that ends up supporting positions that may seem surprising to people. Uh, On one level, what I do is I say to people, you say you want this as a teacher or parent, so how come you're doing that when it turns out that logic and good values and Sometimes common sense point in a very different direction from what have become common practices in schools and in families. Mm-hmm. And you said you said uh, about education and parenting and also human behavior, and, mm-hmm. and that's a pretty broad it is yes. sort of sort of idea, right? Well, I'm interested in more than just. I mean, I, I I started writing about all kinds of, I guess you could call them psychological issues, but often those with social implications. Mm-hmm. My first book looked at the destructive effects of competition in all areas of human life, at Mm -hmm. work, at school, at play, at home, and the whole notion of what it means to have to engage in activities where I can succeed only if you fail. And I drew from a number of different academic disciplines to uncover a lot of research showing that competition is inherently counterproductive. And then I wrote a book about altruism and empathy – 
mm-hmm. um, and the nature of human nature. And if you're familiar with punished by rewards, you know that my challenge to behaviorism and more succinctly the idea of do this and you'll get that mm-hmm. is, again, not just about education or parenting, but about uh, motivation and behavior and broader concepts. Mm-hmm. And uh, it seems to me that the perspective that you are coming from uh, is not the perspective that many are coming from these days who are in positions of leadership in, in education. Do you, do you feel that way? Do you say, think it's yes. gone further in that direction in the last well, couple decades? Yes. I mean, there's not just a single direction. There's right. a lot going on at any given time in education. Um, and of course, are we talking about elementary or secondary, public or private? Mm-hmm. Um, are we talking about assessment, instruction, curriculum? There's a lot of different things going on. But when you step back and look at public policy issues relating to education, what you mostly see is a concerted push by public officials and corporate executives who usually don't know very much about how children learn uh, to implement a corporate-style top-down, heavy-handed, test-driven approach Mm -hmm. to changing schools, uh, which on some level seems to be designed to undermine the whole institution of democratic public education. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, uh, to turn back the clock to a model where the emphasis is on control, Mm -hmm. control by policymakers of educators and control by educators of children to get them to memorize facts and practice skills so that they can become um, adequately skilled, docile future employees. The purpose of this whole approach to, quote, school reform being not to create a vibrant democracy or to do what's in the best interest of children, uh, but ultimately to uh, pump up the economy. So in 60 seconds there, I've summarized a number of individual strands that can be teased apart. Uh, But – I think anyone who's knowledgeable about learning, anyone who's committed to doing what's in the best interest of kids has to be very, very concerned about what's been going on for you know, uh, at least 20 years and is, is getting worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of us thought we had hit bottom uh, at the end of the 90s because so many states had adopted uh, very specific prescriptive standards for what had to be taught along with – uh, really bad tests to enforce those mandates. And then along came what should have been called the Many Children Left Behind Act, mm-hmm. uh, which ramped it up on a national level, forcing uh, schools to test every kid every year from third grade to eighth and again in high school with punishments for the schools that needed the most help, uh, which did and is continuing to do unimaginable damage to kids and to schools, particularly low-income kids, and we thought it couldn't get much worse. Mm -hmm. And then Obama has, with um, the help of the Gates Foundation and uh, Arne Duncan, has taken the Bush administration's attack on public schooling to levels that we dreamed – that that the Bush administration never dreamed could happen. They have taken that that corporate approach – to new levels, and it's really an assault on public education. They've turned a number of schools all over the country really into glorified test prep centers. Mm-hmm. 
And the what's happened with the Obama and Duncan administration with race to the top and all of that, it mm-hmm. reminds me a lot. I, I'm so eager to talk to you about so many things, and I feel like there's a real connection here between what you're talking about now and the the issues around discipline mm-hmm. in the classroom or yes. in, in, in programs. Right. It, it seemed to me like uh, it reminded me the race to the top model of holding out new funding for states and schools and school systems that would apply for it. But in order to apply for it, in order to qualify to apply for it, you have to put a set of policies in place. That's right. And so – even if you didn't win it, you, you've gone ahead and put the policies in place. Right. So it's essentially a means of manipulating, control. of yes. control right. the, the, the states and the, and the school districts into putting those policies into place more than it is a funding source. And it reminded me of in you know the, the movement from – a lot of people know that they want to move away from traditional approaches to discipline. And a lot of people, when we talk about that the, a lot of traditional approaches to discipline – uh, are essentially, when you look at them in their most essential way, it's about getting kids to shut up and stand in line or sit down and shut up. Right. And that one of the things that really struck me about Beyond Discipline was that it's not enough to simply phrase things in a nicer way mm-hmm. and speak with a nicer tone of voice and you know turn, shut up, and sit down to... I forget how you put it. It was like, you know, refrain from talking and please take a seat or something. And that whole, you know, the the idea of moving from the stick to the carrot Mm -hmm. or phrasing things in a nicer way, putting things in a nicer package, Mm -hmm. but not fundamentally changing the thing itself. Right. Saw sort of parallels there with race to the top. Did did you have that response to it when Obama uh, and I think there are several interesting connections between what's done in the name of discipline or classroom management on the one hand and public policy efforts to change education on the other. I'm not sure that race to the top was ever even presented as a kinder, gentler version of what had preceded it. In fact, it became more of a carrot. I mean, it was presented in terms of the. Oh yeah, well, I guess if you believe a that carrot. a carrot and a stick, a carrot is a nicer version of a stick. Yeah. I see your point. I, I I've been doing this for so long that I I see rewards and punishments as two sides of the same coin. They're yeah. both ways of doing things to people as opposed to working with people. But in another respect, race to the top made uh, what had come before uh, even uh, more vulgar and uh, and ugly. Because it turned it into a competition, mm-hmm. uh, which even the Bush administration hadn't thought to do, which is to set states against each other, mm-hmm. saying that one can succeed only by triumphing over another mm-hmm. instead of trying to figure out a fair way to give all the states and their children the resources that they need. Um, second, it was more blatantly about top-down control. You don't get those funds or have a chance of winning this contest where we've created an artificial scarcity and and turned every state into a rival for them, mm-hmm. for other states. You don't even have a chance of winning unless you obey us. Unless and then the third level of problem is what they were asking the states to do, the the particular policy requirements, which is um which is the ultra right wing corporate agenda of 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 the um, a free market model mm-hmm. of of privatizing services when possible of um, moving money away from democratic public schools into quasi private charter schools um, making test scores count for even more mm-hmm. um, 
and uh, uh, let's see, compromising teachers' job protections, threatening to close down schools that need help, mm-hmm. um, merit pay for teachers. You jump through these hoops and raise test scores if you want to earn more money and so on. Um, so I mean there are interesting connections between that and different models of, of discipline with individual kids. One is that schools are cracking down more on individual kids and their conduct precisely because of the pressure to raise test scores. Mm. So uh, they are – what we're seeing, especially in the inner city, is an increasing criminalization of, of adolescent misbehavior um, and e- expelling or suspending kids uh, in part because it seems these kids may be low scorers. Mm-hmm. And so there's that pressure to get rid of, of bad kids mm-hmm. who are – or the kids who who aren't going to bring glory to the adults who run the schools. Uh, And then there's the respect in which, and I don't think many people have commented on this, that um, if someone has a gun to your head and is saying raise test scores or else, um, what kind of classroom do you create? Well, you don't create a classroom that's about discovery and exploration. You don't create a place where kids of different ages and abilities can figure stuff out together and create a democratic learning community. You don't create a place uh, that's intellectually vibrant. You create a place that's all about worksheets Mm -hmm. uh, where you have to memorize these facts and get better at the narrow skill of taking tests, which a lot of kids are good at who aren't very imaginative. And conversely, a lot of kids aren't good at who have terrific brains. But when you're creating a test prep environment, you need a place where kids uh, comply because understandably, most most people who have a mind resist taking time away from real learning to get better at scoring well on tests. And that in turn leads to pressure to create more top-down discipline mm-hmm. for kids uh, to make them sit down and shut up with a variety of bribes and threats. So there are all kinds of, of links. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I've – I've diverged somewhat from your original question, which is about the idea of sort of the uh, ostensibly kinder way of doing something, which has its analog in the classroom and at the state and federal level. But uh, it's it's bad news on many levels. And so let's get a little bit more into that around the the two sides of the same coin, the carrot and the stick. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm working a lot in New York City where – the the mayor uh, has initiated a program for paying kids for grades. Right, I right. think maybe for test scores as well. I'm not sure. Uh, uh, Jeff Canada, who is uh, you know head of the Harlem Children's Zone um, and big advocate for a certain model of charter school yes. and education reform, right now uh, has also uh, very um, enthusiastically advocated for paying kids for grades mm-hmm. uh, and. So this is something that that I, we've been we've been talking about a bit, and I, I had an interesting conversation with Karen Pittman of the Forum for Youth Investment not too long ago, where I raised this with her, mm-hmm. and uh, she said something, and I'd like to sort of quote it to you, okay. just kind of wondering what you think about about this because she she put it in a way that I hadn't really heard before. She said, "The market approach says if you want people to change their behavior, pay them to change their behavior. Mm-hmm. The social psychology says." 
But if you want them to sustain that behavior after you finish paying them, you really have to use the limited time in which you're paying them for the behavior to really bring them into a space in which you reflect on their behavior, change their priorities, build their skills, and get rid of the barriers so that when they come out the other end, they're going to stay on that path. Well, I think she has the first part right in characterizing the economic or free market view. And I think she is unfortunately looking at a thin and outdated view of social psychology if that's as far from that first view as she gets in that field. Social psychology and educational psychology have actually grown beyond a focus on behavior per se. All good educators are not just interested in getting kids to act in a particular way. Mm-hmm. Um, this is what she's offering as as a choice is a, sounds to me like a false choice. It's sort of like uh, a stupid version of behavior control and a slightly savvier version of behavior control. Mm. Fortunately, we're not limited to either of them. Mm-hmm. We're interested not just in the behaviors that can be seen and measured short-term or long-term, but in the values and reasons and motives and the kids who have them. And that stuff um, – is not just a matter of getting better at at rewards or skill building to sustain behaviors in a longer term, mm. but engaging in a respectful and constructive way with the kids themselves and thinking about what learning is and why kids behave that way or the other. What are their attitudes and goals? What does their perspective look like? And that requires us not merely to get better at the way we implement a policy like that, But to stop doing what research shows is counterproductive among those tactics would be any kind of uh, doggy biscuit that's offered to kids. Now, in the case of paying kids for grades, you're talking about a reward for a reward. The best teachers don't give grades, much less do they give them a doggy biscuit for getting a good grade, which doubles the damage. Um, In fact, I have an article coming out in the November issue of Educational Leadership uh, which sort of updates some of the research and experience of of why grades get in the way. Um, so when you hear people say, for example, I don't believe in paying kids for good grades. They should just take pleasure in the grade itself. No, <laughs> the grade is part of the problem. <laughs> what you know, An A, just like a dollar or a pat on the head and a patronizing good job or a sticker – Uh, All of these are extrinsic inducements Mm -hmm. that research shows undermine the intrinsic desire to learn. Now, parallel to the paying kids for grade stuff, the kind of mindless behaviorist way of manipulating kids, which is disproportionately visited on kids of color in the inner city. Mm -hmm. That's not to say that affluent white kids aren't given stickers and behavior charts too, but the – the full-strength concentrate of this kind of tendency to treat kids like pets is mostly visited upon kids with the least resources, um, which is why you don't really find the sort of pay kids for test scores. Now, paying kids for test scores raises a question not only about means but about the end. Mm-hmm. I mean this is a bad way to accomplish a bad goal. <laughs> so um, on the one hand um, – there may be better ways to achieve that goal that don't involve the carrot and stick. 
But if the goal itself is to raise test scores, that's not the same thing as helping kids to learn more deeply and right. to love it. Right. Uh, and and conversely, uh, I suppose you could try to use the bad means for a better goal, like paying kids to think more deeply. But I think we, uh, there's <laughs> yeah. a different version. But we have right. to, we have to look at both separately. Yeah, you mentioned competition, and uh, I it's funny to come to talk to you in the middle of this particular day because I'm I'm attending a conference today here in Boston, sponsored by the National Center for Time and Learning and Harvard. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I think School of Education, uh, and it's it's all about uh, what they're calling expanding learning time, expanded learning time, expanding learning opportunities, extended day. Extended. Right, right, right. Um, and this the conference this morning, which was uh, about six keynote addresses and three panels between eight thirty and twelve thirty in in one in one room, mm -hmm. uh, was mostly focusing on the idea that we need to have more time in the school day. Right. And there, you know, I don't want to be unfair. There was a fair amount of talk about, it's not just about more time. It's about what we do with that time. But, but there was a lot of talk about time. And um, there's a few things that I, a few notes that I took that I was eager to come to you and sort of see what your mm -hmm. response might be to okay. some of these things. Uh, but one of them had to do with what you mentioned about competition. Um, in the course of saying something else, one of the speakers mentioned that there is soon going to be over 7 billion people in the world, that the pop world population is about to go up to 7 billion, and that we need to prepare our kids to compete with all of them. Huh. Sure. After all, what are other people for if not to uh, defeat? That's – um, what kind of way is that to raise and teach children, to look on everyone else as a potential rival whose face you have to step on to get ahead? Mm -hmm. I don't want my kids to compete in the 21st century. I want them to learn how to collaborate in the 21st century. And and every time you see a another ranking of international test scores where people wring their hands over the U.S. being number you know 12 instead of number one, uh, put a Put aside for a moment the fact that this is about test scores, not about learning. But let's pretend that that's a useful indicator of learning. What we're saying is that we want kids who live in other countries to do poorly. And I find that intellectually and morally bankrupt. I want children in every country to succeed. Um, uh, but the, the, the larger the larger question – I mean and it, I believe it's probably not a coincidence that the same people whose idea of school reform is to make kids do the same crap longer also are more interested in winning than in, say, learning or caring. That's not to say there's a perfect correspondence. There may be people who, who share my views about wanting to cooperate or at least not wanting to have to defeat other people who still believe that the more time you force kids to do spend on a task or at school, the better they're going to do. Well, that, that's an empirical question. Now we're not talking about value judgments. And the research very clearly shows that more time on task is not strongly correlated to uh, better proficiency unless the task is mindlessly simple. The simpler the task, the stronger the correlation between time and outcome. Mm -hmm. When you start talking about understanding mathematical principles from the inside out instead mm -hmm. of merely memorizing algorithms or when you're talking about reading for understanding instead of pronouncing words correctly, then there's almost no relationship. I mean obviously you need a certain amount of time to, to do a task. But beyond 
uh, that threshold, it, it doesn't really mean much. Now look at it from the bigger picture. We supposedly have all kinds of problems with our schools. Why would you think that more time, more days uh, in the year or more hours in the day would lead to any substantive improvement at all, especially since school is so profoundly alienating and unengaging for so many kids because of the continued traditional emphasis on worksheets and textbooks and lectures and quizzes and grades and homework, you know? Why would you think that strapping them to a chair and saying you got to stay till 5 p.m. or you got to go through the summer would do anything to address the fundamental problems we have with that, it's that more of the same or intensification stuff? I mean, I looked at this from another direction when I wrote a book about homework. It turns out that homework, um, certainly below the high school level, has absolutely no academic benefit, regardless of how much of it is assigned or how good it is. And even in high school, it's a dubious connection, making kids work a second shift when they get home from spending all day in school. It's not only off-putting to kids and causes them to lose interest in learning on many occasions. It has, it has no apparent benefit, but it comes from that same corporate style, you know, uh, simplistic sensibility that leads people to hold whole conferences, not about how to make school more engaging and meaningful and worthwhile, but how to make it last longer. So what what's a lot of these speakers would say, I, I think, mm-hmm. is something like, um, in order to do more project-based learning, in order to get deeper into things, in order to give English language learners more time uh, to to practice, that you need more more time. You need more time to do all of those things. The other thing, the other argument that was being made that I thought was really confusing was that it was said several times that we had to cut things like gym and music and art because there wasn't time. So if we add more time to the school day and the school year, we can add those things back in. (laughs) But at some time there was time for those things. So where did we suddenly – We we cut that stuff, A, because there wasn't enough money or B, because of the the, uh, pressure to raise test scores and that stuff doesn't lead to higher test scores or at least we can't prove it does. Um, so, but, uh, you know, this is a bargain with the devil. Most of the people who are pushing for longer school days, longer school years, and so on are the, all, the same people who talk about competitiveness, who talk about uh, accountability, raising the bar, more rigorous schooling, more corporate focus. Uh, these aren't the people who have been saying for years, if only we had another hour, we could do rich project-based learning, interdisciplinary teaching. I mean, there, there may be – the Venn diagram has very little overlap between those two. And if the school day or year is lengthened, you know, like they were pushing to do in Chicago, that's going to lead to more drill and skill. You know, there's, there's not going to be better stuff. Apart from that, I just want to ask these people, how much is enough? If you really were serious about improving the quality of teaching and learning – and I mean in a meaningful way. Mm-hmm. I don't mean – shoveling in more facts to raise test scores and make the adults look better. I mean, to really help kids be excited and proficient thinkers. How much time is enough? You know, I got a bigger desk a couple of years ago. Within two weeks, the stuff had expanded to fill that time and I wanted a bigger desk. Right. You know, um, this is all. And when teachers say, I have to give homework, I have to shove the burden over the kids to make them do the stuff I can't figure out how to make them do during the time allotted to me. How much time would you need to have such that you would finally say, yeah, that's enough. Well, the, the one of the founders of, of KIPP 
charter schools was at this particular conference and he was describing his school system and he said that his students go to school nine and a half to ten hours a day, then go home with some homework and then come to school on Saturdays and over the summer too. He should be ashamed of what that does to children's lives, you know? The superficial criticism of KIPP schools is that's not scalable. You're not going to be able to do that to enough kids in enough schools to make a difference from a public policy perspective. So any gains they get are atypical and unreplicable. But I, I, I wouldn't send a dog, my dog, to a KIPP school. The way they treat children... First of all, it's not about what – ask the basic questions about what makes for a great school, the kind you'd want to send your kid to. You know, First, how much say do the kids have about what they're learning? To what extent are they brought in on the decision-making? How do we want our class to be? If we need guidelines at a school level, kids learn how to make good decisions by making decisions. You know, Let's look at KIPP. I mean even the teachers have, have limited – uh, discretion about what they do. You know, number two, do they get the kind of great, again, interdisciplinary, team-taught, student-directed, project-based learning where the point is to understand ideas from the inside out? Or is it all about showing better scores on bad tests? And then third, when there's a problem, do you work with kids to try to solve the problem or do you bribe or threaten them into mindless obedience? You know, it's about work hard, be nice. And nice, you get the sense contextually, doesn't mean a compassionate, generous human being. It means you do what you're told. You obey authority without question or else we publicly humiliate you. And conversely, have a token economy program of the sort that was developed um, on in, in mental institutions some years ago. Um, the program itself at its core is anti-child. The fact that they also believe that kids should be subject to it for more hours in the day and mm-hmm. the week is unsurprising and more depressing. Mm-hmm. Um, are they able to, to pump up the test scores as a result? I'm willing to stipulate that they can. A lot of people have challenged that, um, you know, because they also cherry pick the students and throw out the ones who aren't going to make them look good. I don't know. They say they don't. I mean, they say they they don't. I've read people who've had example after example where they do, but let's assume they don't. Yeah. You know, let's assume you can turn a school into a, um, a factory, which is what this is where you reward or punish students into doing exactly what they're told, not questioning authority and becoming thinkers. Um, And you make them stay there long into the night, sacrificing social, moral, emotional, artistic, physical development, all in the service of being socialized to comply with authority and get better at taking tests. I am willing to grant that they can raise test scores, you know? If they figured out a way to do this in the usual six-hour-a-day, five-day-a-week thing, I would still find it horrifying. Mm-hmm. But the fact that they are sucking up a lot of this, these kids' childhoods in the process by demanding extra time makes it – adds insult to injury. I had a conversation recent, recently with someone who was uh, 
just you know not as familiar with education but um had resources and wanted to mm-hmm. support things and was um you know curious to know different perspectives on on KIPP and other charter schools and you know when I described some of the critique that I had his response was okay I I can kind of see that like you know he said my kid goes to a private school yeah. where they call the teachers by their first names and they've right. got these really right. intellectually engaging and rigorous projects and you know they don't walk in a single file line down yeah. the hallway and yeah. all that so I can yeah. I can see he said I can see that but but isn't it better than a lot of the um uh schools in economically poorer neighborhoods that already exist the sort of traditional school isn't it better to see the kids walking in a single file down the hall and chanting their their math times tables and chanting the work hard be nice slogans and all of that than than the alternative the there are two alternatives for black kids in the inner city the the standard traditional kind of schools the, which has often neglected them and been worksheets offered haphazardly by a revolving core of burnt out teachers versus boot camp where you get more worksheets by younger people who are more committed to the mission i mean to pose the question as those two alternatives is is not only outrageous it's racist how come the kind of education that his kid gets doesn't become the model for kids of color since as one person put it progressive education is is nice for affluent kids whereas for poor kids it's essential mm. but we don't we don't we don't look at it at that we we say compared to what they were get uh, i'm not sure i would hate to have someone force me to choose frankly i am in no way romanticizing you know pre nclb schools in the inner city mm-hmm. um or non charter schools uh, which are appalling you know which uh, many many people have been uh, – I mean it's no co- coincidence just to cite one name you may be familiar with that uh, a guy like Jonathan Kozol mm-hmm. who has been documenting the horrors of inner city education and the savage inequality of American schooling for so ye- so many years joins me and so many others in being more horrified by KIPP and so many other of the charter school models that are imposed on kids of color in the inner city as sort of ratcheting up the damage. It's now a more systematic way of making sure that black kids and urban kids in general get a worse education than white kids uh, in the suburbs. It seems to me that there's more of a debate about a fundamental worldview than there is about all the tactics and the different reform strategies and this kind of school or that kind of school. It seems to me that a thread that runs throughout your work and what I hear in this conversation too is that you said it's it's bad for, for kids. It's a the treating young people as um, pet like pets or treating young people like they're you, there's they're people that you need to get to do things yeah. or do things to is essentially wrong. It's not just ineffective, right? But it's also wrong on yeah, some deeper yeah. level. It's hard to have that conversation in most of the arenas in which I work. When when you start talking about a difference in in worldview or a difference in 
the way that what we think is the right way to really approach this work. I don't find, I don't get a lot of response. I don't feel like a lot of people want to talk about that. There are fundamentally different views one can take. Well, there's no such thing as a value free conversation about education or parenting. There's only a conversation in which the values are invisible. And whenever they're invisible, you tend to, by default, adopt the values of the status quo. Mm. So when you don't talk about this stuff, it's, it's, um, it's uh, implicitly conservative um, and perpetuates the things that we're already doing. So there's always values present. You know, There's always a goal. What are you trying to do here? I try to make that uh, explicit whenever I speak to teachers or parents. Usually the first thing I do in a lecture or a workshop is to ask, what are your long-term goals for your kids? How, how, how do you hope they will turn out? What do you hope they'll be like after they've left your class, your school, your, your household? Um, and it's interesting. I've done this in urban, suburban, and rural environments all over North America. I've done it with teachers and administrators, elementary and secondary and parents, public and private schools, and there's a remarkable degree of consensus. Mm-hmm. I've done this literally hundreds of times with tens of thousands of people, and I can tell you, you might be able to guess, um, uh, all the, the list looks remarkably the same. People say, uh, I want kids to be problem solvers, good communicators, lifelong learners who are curious, creative, critical thinkers. I want them to be uh, happy, ethical, caring, independent, responsible, the same sort of things show up all over. It's interesting that most of the items that show up, even with educators, are have to do with the kind of people that kids become, not just the kind of learners. Um, so there's more like happy and ethical and responsible. Um, but even when they look at intellectual issues, they tend to be things like lifelong learner or problem solver rather than my life. My long-term goal is for my kids to be able to convert a decimal into a fraction. Nobody Mm -hmm. says that. So then I say to them, is it possible that our practices are inconsistent with our goals? Um, But let's keep the goals in mind because you say you want your kid to be this, this, and this. So why are you doing stuff that is likely to undermine those very goals. Here's the research showing that when you reward kids or praise them uh, for for uh, being nice, they become a little more selfish, mm-hmm. a little more focused on what do I get, even if it's just a pat on the head and a little less concerned about other people's needs. Um, if you're using grades, if you're assigning them homework, uh, if you're excluding kids from decisions about what we're going to read next – you know, here's the research that says they're less likely to become lifelong learners. You you have to choose. So values are very much present. So it's our job to bring them into the conversation. That doesn't mean we ignore the empirical stuff. It so happens that on the issues I like to talk about, it's like a, a, a double a double whammy for the people who want to perpetuate the status quo. The research shows it isn't particularly effective at getting even their own goals, mm-hmm. and in many cases. Uh, some of the goals, uh, or at least the values implicit in the practices, are, I think, uh, deeply problematic. I we, we do in the workshops we do at Development Without Limits, we do the exact same uh-huh. exercise. Oh, good. Uh-huh. Um, so I've also had that conversation many, many times. I was just in uh, Burlington, Vermont, on last Friday. Mm-hmm. 
um, doing a workshop. We, we do call it positive discipline, but we, we started calling our workshops that before we knew that there was a whole series of books and official trainings called positive discipline. Uh-huh. They're actually called positive discipline, how to work with kids and not be mean. Um, but, uh, in our positive discipline workshops, that's one of the first things we do is that is have that conversation. Uh-huh. And, and, you know, what we say to sort of wrap it up is, you know, we've, no one ever says, I, I want my kid to be obedient right. or compliant. Right. Uh, people say good citizen and people say engaged and cooperative and all those, you know, reflective mm-hmm. and things that, you know, aren't just about being a radical change maker. Yes. But they never say obedient or stand in line, walk in line. Right. Right. Uh, I started working in the field of after school. Um, I don't know, uh, 15 years ago or something like that. And at the time I was working in an after school program that was really focused on, um, you know, providing a environment where young people could choose what they wanted to participate in to, um, to choose what they wanted to learn, but also to be able to be a part of sports and arts and, um, community service and all kinds of things. Very, you know, youth centered program. Mm-hmm. It's still, still like that. That's LA's best in, in Los Angeles. It's still a program that is really focused in that way. But I started to see with 21st century community learning centers at the federal level and different sort of um, parts of the way the after school movement was sort of coming together. I had this sort of nightmare vision that I, I started to write an article about it and I, I never did anything to publish it, but it was this almost like post-apocalyptic sort of story where, you know, a young person gets up at you know seven in the morning and goes to school and doesn't get out until eight at night, yeah, and then has to do more work and right. go, you know and so we're starting to see a lot of those things actually happening now. And I, at the, this conference that I was just mentioning today, I heard another uh, level of it that I hadn't really heard before, and I wanted to run this by you too. Uh, they were talking about this particular school was talking the the I believe it was the principal or, or some leader at this school or school district. They were talking about. Um, the need to start very young practicing the sorts of academic skills that kids are going to need when they get older. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'm a little bit familiar with this because my daughter's in pre-K and she gets homework. Mm, my God. Um, she's in pre-K at the public school. You know, they have a it's pre-K. It's outrageous in it, fifth grade, yeah. let alone pre-K. <laughs> she, it's supposedly optional, but uh, I'm pretty sure I'm, you know, I know what the teacher's response is if they don't do it. It's, it's, it's coloring. But it's be- and and she and the teacher says, oh, they love it, you know, especially the ones with older brothers and sisters. Yeah, they, they love, love it, it now. We'll, you know. we'll take care of that in yeah. short order. Yeah. So I've been seeing that a, a little bit uh, at a co- workshop I was at recently. Someone was saying we we screened the film Race to Nowhere mm-hmm. um, out in Seattle, Washington, last week, and uh, and someone was saying that her, she picks up her seven year old granddaughter at gymnastics and takes her home, and that her her daughter had texted her. A list of vocabulary words and asked her to to drill her her seven year old oh, granddaughter in the oh car between gymnastics and home because she had a spelling test the next day. Um, but this, what I heard today, took it to a new level. She was saying that they what they do in at every level of the school is they they have a system for teaching. Um, I forget what she called it, like really not just reading but engaged reading, and it was about reading the text closely, interpreting the text, being able to make a claim and cite evidence. And she said that they do this at all levels from pre-K on up. Mm. So they're, ta- they're having conversations with four-year-olds about reading the text closely, interpreting the text, making a claim, and offering evidence. My, my daughter loves, loves books, loves to read. I mean, just loves it. I can't imagine 
how quickly I could get her to stop loving yeah. books and oh, stop that's loving a great to way read. To do it. Yeah. Well, there's several great ways. In fact, I've I've written about this. You know, I have I have a, an article called "How to Create Non-Readers." You know, and it offers seven ways to destroy children's interest in learning. You know, one of them is to reward kids, give them uh -huh. a, give them some prize for reading a book. Right. You know, pizza party, a, a pizza, right? Uh, a T-shirt from the public library during the summer. Mm -hmm. Take you know, etc. Uh, another way is to give kids no choice about what they're reading. Third is to turn it into work. Is to uh, where they've got to uh, put little stickies on it and be thinking about metacognitive stuff going on right. and write reports, answer mm -hmm. questions, and so on. That that turns it into a chore. Be enough to destroy anyone's interest in reading. So the the first question you ask is if your long term goal is not just about skill development, and I think almost any educator will say, even if we disagree about some of the strategies, I don't want I don't only want kids to read with this sophisticated uh, set of, of, of decoding strategies or comprehension strategies, but I want kids to like reading. Mm -hmm. I want them to be lifelong readers. Well, that is completely inconsistent with, with this, particularly at a young, at a young age. Um, the greatest predictor to kids who read not only with enthusiasm, but with skill is to set them loose on books so they pick books they want and read for as long as they want um, on, on their own time uh, without turning it into uh, some sort of graduate seminar before the kids are barely out of diapers. You know, yeah. I mean this – what you're describing is, uh, is almost a textbook example of what would be called developmentally inappropriate practice. Sure. I don't like it even for older students. Um, but here – it's developmentally in, especially inappropriate. And it gets close to so, something I've called BIGUTI, which is a stupid uh, acronym for better get used to it, uh -huh. which is how right. we justify a lot of stuff with little kids where there's absolutely no intrinsic benefit and it's developmentally inappropriate. Yeah. Homework, yeah. grades, standardized tests, competition is we say to them basically – uh, this may be lousy, but people are going to do these lousy things to you later. So we have to prepare you for right. that by doing lousy things to you now. Yeah. And when you when you lay bare what's going on, it's almost laughable. Yeah. You know, it's like the Monty Python sketch of getting hit on really the head is. lessons. You know, yeah. which is excellent preparation for getting hit on the head later. Right. Right. But people <laughs> with a straight face actually yeah. do this crap to kids. Yeah. There's so many more things we could talk about, but there's yeah. something sort of a little bit more personal for me that I w I want to ask you uh -huh. when I read. Your work, the I have two responses that I keep having again and again. One is this sort of relief, like I knew it, mm -hmm. like the punished by rewards book, especially. Like I've always been uncomfortable with the stickers and the pizza parties and mm -hmm. and all that stuff. And then you read that, and it's like I knew I've never been able to articulate why I felt like wrong about that stuff. Right, right. But you know, and now I read it, and it's like I knew, and then I have to keep rereading it because it's so. I, I can forget it. I can sort of read it and instantly forget <laughs> right, right. it, you know? Um, and the, the other is the feeling like uh, you're – the feeling like you're seeing something mi that's missing rather than just critiquing what's there, right? Okay. So, so much of what I have in the field and conferences and, and other articles and stuff is, is just talking about the current policies, the current practices and talking about, could we do it a little better? Could we do, is this a little better than this? Is this a little better than that? Mm -hmm. And what you're often talking about is it's like you said earlier, it's not a choice between those two options. There mm -hmm. is another world. Another world is, is right. possible. Right. 
And, and I'm just wondering, like, how do you practice thinking like that? How do you, how do you do that kind of work where you're able to uncover those things and show that there is something else besides the, the available options that are being presented to you? Well, you cheat by learning what other options other people have figured out. You know, the, the broader your exposure to different kinds of schools and societies and families, the more, if you're open to what you're seeing and hearing, the more you can let that fertilize uh, your own thinking. So you don't have to come up with everything by yourself. Or you can buy – so if you, if you, for example, just assume that, um, uh, I don't know, what, kids have to be segregated by age. They're all in second grade, then they're all in third grade, then they're all in fourth grade, and you never stop to think about it. And But then if the more schools you visit, you know, you say, hey, wait a minute, they've got seven, eight, and nine-year-olds together in that school. What the hell? Why would mm-hmm. we? I don't you know, I don't, I don't, how many 42 year olds spend most of their time only with other 42 year olds? Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be like this, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the same is true for many other things that we just assumed you have to do, you know, uh, uh, from grades and homework to the notion that if a kid does something bad, something bad has to be done to him. Why? You know? And then you start to reason by analogy. You see enough examples of this where you see there are other opportunities, other things we're not doing that we could be doing that most people haven't thought of. And you say, well, if that's true here, Mm. then by extension, how can I think about this situation in front of me in a different way and transcend the limited options that I've been presented with? What else could it be like? Mm -hmm. And you don't have to do that alone either because you can do that in conversation with others. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It's been a pleasure, and I really appreciate um, you being on Please Speak Freely. And more than that, I appreciate the the work that you're doing in the world. Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. Good to talk with you. Mm-hmm.